You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Matthew 26, verse 47, we'll begin reading in. A reminder that we are in the middle of a series. The title of the series is called The Cup of Suffering. In the middle of this cup of suffering, we're going to be walking with Christ in the final week before his death. And the aim of this series, remember, the aim of this series is to produce in us an awe. It's to produce in us a reverence. It's to produce in us a sober-mindedness towards the sufferings that Christ endured for us. And also to renew our hearts and to renew our affections for Jesus Christ. To fill our hearts with love as we look at this passion week of Jesus Christ. Now that word passion in English uh, means to love someone so deeply, but it used to mean to suffer deeply as well. And so in this series, as we examine the, 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 the intense suffering of Jesus Christ, we're seeing it through the lens of his love for his Father and his love for us. So it's meant to carry us, if you will, in, in the backpack of Jesus, on his shoulders, witnessing and re-witnessing the events of his suffering all that Christ endured so that you and I might have life. Now, our passage tonight uh, takes us to midnight between Thursday and Friday. In fact, it's early uh, Friday morning. We return to Gethsemane uh, for its final scene. So our time is shorter here this evening with all these great baptisms. So we're going to dive right in. Matthew 26, verse 47, a reading now says this. While he was still speaking... Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be leading us uh, through this passage now, and I pray, God, that we would be seeing, please, Lord, please, seeing again with fresh perspective, uh, fresh sight, the suffering that you went through, but also, Lord, recognizing that this suffering was for a purpose, it was for a reason. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be gripping our hearts now, please, Lord, that you would be leading us through this passage now, please, Lord that you would be feeding us all. Please, Lord, with your truth. Please, Lord. Please help that we would see again and give glory to you for all that you have done for us. And Lord, get love from us, get glory from us, worship from us even. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider the suffering that Jesus Christ went through, it's my hope tonight that as we read God's Word and we begin to understand more fully and more deeply, what we'll see is, 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 is a greater perspective of how much Jesus Christ loves us, of how much Jesus Christ loves His Father. That's the hope 
behind today's message. That's the hope as we begin. And as I consider love and examine this passage, my thoughts naturally turn to the person that I love the most in this world, my wife Catherine. And I remember the time when we met each other and began dating. Now, this was in the time almost before the internet, but it was certainly the time before Facebook. And we were meeting and dating each other in a Christian college down in the States. And, and, and outside of our respective dorm uh, uh, buildings, in, in, in just before the elevator of each dorm building, uh, you could walk up to that, 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 that bulletin board, but you couldn't go in the elevator and go up. It was a Christian college. No men allowed on the floors. No women allowed on the floors. What a novel idea. Anyways, we would go to those dorms, and I remember there was literally a bulletin board. That was our board. And, and, and what you could do is you could grab a, a slip of paper, and you would fold it in half and tape it, write, their, write the person's name on it, and pin it to the board underneath their last name. So in, in Houghton, you, I would go up and I would pin it under the N, which was Catherine's last name. Catherine would come over to Culbertson Hall where I lived. She would pin a note under the T, which is my last name. And then you would walk into the dorm and then you would walk by that board and occasionally, what a day, what an hour when there was a note there. And you take that note, and I've still got a ton of these notes. And you, you, know, you, you don't want to read it there because you want to be cool. Read it on the elevator on the way up. Keep that note dearly. Hide it from your roommate because he'll make fun of you. <laughs> but these notes are special. And you start to read them and you start to get the sense, I think she likes me. I think he likes me. And then pretty soon you start to use the word love. That's how we communicated initially. Listen, loved ones, this passage in front of you this action scene, with its betrayal, with its angry mob, with its sword fight, with its abandonment and capture, is actually telling a part of this great love story that God has for you. It's a story, a note written to you of how much Jesus loves you. Why is this important? Why is this important tonight to read this? Well, because I forget I forget. I forget. I, I miss it sometimes. Maybe there's a difficult thing in the home, or maybe there's a trial that I'm going through. Maybe there's a hard thing at work. Maybe, maybe it's problems with my wife. Maybe it's problems with my husband. Maybe it's problems with my in-laws. Maybe it's problems with my regular family. Maybe it's problems everywhere. I've got problems, and I, I just miss it. Sometimes the difficulties and the problems of this life cloud my vision, and I can't see the bulletin board. I can't see the note. There, screaming out the love of Jesus Christ for me. Jesus saying, you don't understand how much I love you. But I hope you see it more clearly today. So in fact, the point of today's message is very simple. I want, to see, I want you to see his love. I, I, because when your hearts see his love and your hearts feel his love, when you understand not only what he did, but why he did it, when you feel the weight of the what and feel the weight of the why, I believe your heart is led to this truth, that Jesus loves me. This I know. That's the point of today's passage, for us to see again and be gripped again with the love of Jesus Christ, to say again, Jesus loves me, and this I know. How do I know? Well, I want you to see this first in our narrative, in our story in front of us, in verse 47, notice this, that love stood still. Love stood still. 
While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now here's some reasons to run. There's a mob. One commentary I read said hundreds of people. They're coming not just, not just by themselves, though. They're coming with swords. They're coming with clubs. They're coming with lanterns. They're coming with torches. They're coming with religious leaders who hate Jesus. They're coming with Judas leading the way. Now, Judas's name is synonymous with betrayal, so much so that another betrayer, Benedict Arnold, was called a Judas. He's synonymous with betrayal. Well, the Jewish leaders have been looking for him for some time. In fact, Satan has entered into Judas just a few hours earlier at the Passover meal. They've been looking now for a way to betray him. Now, he's not with Jesus in the garden, but he does know Jesus, and he knows where to find him. John tells us in his account in John 18, verse 2, Now, Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. We can picture the scene. He goes with the crowd to the upper room. He's not here anymore, guys. <gasps> but I know where he is. I know where he'll be, because he always goes to the same spot. He's taken us countless times. So Judas leads the mob to the oil press to Gethsemane. Now, obviously, it's dark because it's nighttime. It's hard to see. There are torches, John's account tells us. But Jesus, he knows really well. He knows him really well. Because that's how it is with people you know really well. You know them by the... Even in the dark, you know who they are. You, you know them by their height. You know them by their size. You know them by their silhouette. You just know them. And, and Judas knows Jesus. He's been with Jesus for three years. He sat under the same teaching that Peter and James and John have sat under. He's seen the same miracles. He's watched the same amazing stories being told. He's watched, he's watched as Lazarus has been raised from the dead. He's seen this. He's seen the same teaching, the same care, and the same love, and the same protection. So Judas knows who Jesus is, and, and Judas has come up with what he thinks is a brilliant way to identify Jesus in the middle of the dark, cloudy garden. There's a great way to figure out who it is, guys. It will give you a great way to take out the target, a very high-profile target. Let's get him away from the city, away from the city and its crowd, and here's the sign. It's a kiss. It's an intimate sign. Think of what you do with kisses. You take the person that you love, Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a close family member. And you bring your face to their face. It's intimate. You know, the world of man was brought into existence by a kiss in another garden. When God made man, he breathes life into him face to face. And now here, fast forwarding to this garden, here is man coming face to face with his creator. Not to bring life, not to bring honor, but to bring destruction to destroy his creator. And this, this, loved ones, is the essence of all of our sin. What's happening right now in this kiss, this is the essence of all of our sin. It's all of us saying to God, go away. I want you dead, God. Oh, that's too harsh, Craig, but that's the truth. All of us in our sinful natures are saying to God, I don't want to live by your standards, God. I know what your word says. I know what your rules say. I'm not living by that anymore. 
I'm living by my rules. You know what would be better? If I was in charge of this whole universe, if I was in charge of my life, I want you, God, to go away. And Judas does this. Go away, God. Leave us. This kiss that betrays. Now, understandably, this is a very, very powerful uh, scene, and, and, and artists have picked up on this uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, hey, I want to pull up a couple of pictures. This is a, 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 an Italian artist. His name is Giotto, and this is a fresco. And here's Judas coming in close with the arm around, Jesus standing still. How about this next one by a French painter, Gustave Doré? Close. There's Jesus' hand. Greetings, friend. Or how about this last one? The disciples are in this crowd back here. You can't see it in this painting. But one thing you see in all three of these that the artists have picked up on, which is what I think is true to the text, is that Jesus is standing still. He's not moving. He's not resisting. Why is he, be, why is he standing still? Why is he not moving? He knows he's going to be betrayed. In fact, he's predicted it three times publicly to the disciples. He knows that this is going to happen. In fact, even back in verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. See, here's my betrayer at hand. If he knows that he's going to be betrayed, why is he standing still? Would you have stood still? If you knew that there's a mob coming for you, if you knew that the end result of the mob was you hanging on a cross and dying, would you have stood still? Now understand this, this is not, this is not a scene of Jesus refusing to back down. This is not a scene of Jesus refusing to back down from a fight like a kid on the playground. No, this is a scene that's happened only once in the history of everything. What's happening in this moment now is, 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 that, is that the twin dams of wrath have broken. There's the, the, there's the dam on this side of the wrath of men, the Pharisees and the scribes and those who hated Jesus and hated him for what he stood for and were jealous of his authority, jealous of the way he gathered crowds, jealous of the way he answered questions, jealous of the way the people were wanting to make him king. And this opportunity, a crack breaks through the dam and this wrath pours out, rising in a tidal wave upon Jesus. This, this dam is broken. And on this side is the dam of the wrath of God against our sin. This, this, this is this constant, all of us saying, no, God, I'm going to do it my way, God. I'm going to do it my way, God, in my power, in my authority. Go away, God. I want you dead, God. That dam breaks. And here is Jesus in Gethsemane, knowing that both dams have broken and both waves are coming towards him. And he stands still, anchored. Would you have stood still? Would you have run? Couldn't he have escaped, you say? Well, yes, he could have escaped. In fact, the gospel writers tell us of five different times that the religious authorities tried to capture, tried to kill Jesus. Twice they tried to stone him. Twice they tried to arrest him. And once they tried to throw him off a cliff. But he just passed through their midst. It wasn't his time, not yet. Could he have escaped? Yes. Listen, listen. Jesus isn't going into the hands of men unless he wants to go. The mob thinks that this is a surprise attack, but Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus is in control. Perfect control. 
It's been planned before the foundation of the world. And he goes, now, because now is the time. Love stood still. And with fierce courage even welcomes this moment. We read this in verse 49. And he, that's Judas, comes up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and they laid hands on him and seized him. Friend, do what you came to do. That's a command, by the way. That's Jesus saying, now's the time. Do it, Judas. Jesus has chosen this time. It's a time for him to obey the Father. It's a time to obey the Father that he loves. It's a time to save the church that he loves. God himself stands before the mob. He doesn't run. He doesn't flee. He gives himself into them. Jesus loves me. This I know. How do I know? Because love stood still. And you pull the note off the bulletin board, and it's a note from Jesus, written to you. Dear Craig, do you know that I love you? I could have run away. I could have run away. I could have fled, but I stood still for you. Now, verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I know Jesus loves me because he stood still for me. But I also know that Jesus loves me because he stood unarmed, unarmed for me. This is our second point, unarmed. Now, verse 51 tells us that it was one of those who were with Jesus. Now, the advantage of having four Gospels tell four of the same stories is that we get to cross-reference some of them. And we find out from John's Gospel who this one of those who were with us is. John tells us that it's Peter. He rats him right out. That was Peter who did that. And then John gives us a little bit more information. He says, and by the way, the guy's ear who got cut off was Malchus. You can go look it up if you want to. Maybe even find him today. You could find him and ask him how that went. And by the way, it was his right ear. That's what John tells us. John tells us it's Peter, that it was Malchus who lost the ear, and that it was his right one. And by the way, this is definitely not, not a well-targeted ear shot by Peter. This is a headshot that missed. Peter's trying to kill. And Jesus' response to Peter is telling, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I don't need a sword, Peter. You think a piece of steel is going to help me? I don't need a sword. And then he says this, 
Do you think that I cannot appeal, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now I did the math on that, looked up what a legion is and, 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 and added it all together. Do you know how many angels he's talking about? Do you know how many angels he's talking about? Okay, well, how about this? Uh, in the Bible, when you read about one angel appearing, what happens? People drop on their knees, right? And cover their faces and hide in fear. And sometimes you read of two angels and then if one angel is terrifying, well, two angels is, is doubly terrifying What's Jesus talking about here? 12 legions of angels. Do you know how many angels that is? That's 72,000 angels, at least. Peter, Peter, I don't need your sword. I could call down 72,000 angels like this. Now, what a fight that'd be. Now, John's gospel gives us another interesting piece in this scene. In John chapter 18, verses 5 to 6, he says this. This is Jesus answering the crowd. Uh, uh, he says to them, who are you seeking? And, and they answer him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And Now notice this, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you know what's happening here? Let's translate this from the English. What's, what's behind this phrase, I am he, is, a single, is two words, which is I am. Ego eimi, I am. Hey, hey, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And what happens in that moment? What happens in that moment when he speaks the divine name of God laid out in the Old Testament? What happens in that moment when he declares himself for who he really is? They drop to their knees. They fall to the ground in terror. What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this whose words drop people? What kind of man is this who claims the name of God and people fall back in fear? It's the Son of God, that's who. He doesn't need steel. He doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need 72,000 angels. He's got a voice that can melt stars. He's got a voice that could have said in that moment, I want you all to stop existing. And they would have all stopped existing. This is the power of Jesus Christ, the voice of Jesus who spoke the truth, who calmed the storms, who healed the crowds, who called out demons, who raised Lazarus and Jairus' daughter to life, who created the world, who will someday soon conquer his enemies. His voice would have been more than enough just to say stop, and it would have stopped. But Jesus doesn't need these things. You see this? Jesus doesn't need a sword. Jesus doesn't need angels. He doesn't need things that are made. An angel is no more needed to him than a grain of dust is. They add nothing to his perfection, and he's perfectly powerful. He needs no defenders, and Jesus Christ chooses no defense. Listen, listen. If you capture Jesus, it's because he wants you to capture him. There's no other way around this. Jesus stares hell in the face. And he doesn't blink. He doesn't reach for a sword. He doesn't call down angels. He doesn't speak power. Love stood unarmed. C.S. Lewis repaints this scene in his great book, The Lion and the Witch 
in the wardrobe. And the great lion, Aslan, who represents Christ in his atoning sacrifice, is besieged by the witch who represents Satan and her armies. And in this great story, the lion, in the pivotal moment, offers his life in sacrifice. And the, and, the, and the witch says to him in this moment, muzzle him. And as the children are watching from the bushes, they're seeing, even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands, but he never moved. You ever muzzle a lion? What if I gave you a muzzle and, and said, there's a lion over there. Just put that on him. And you look scared, and I say, well, a muzzle will hold. And you're saying, that's not the muzzle I'm concerned about. <laughs> it's the moments before the muzzle. One bite of his jaws would have cost three of them their hands. One word from Jesus' mouth would have ended it all. Silent as a lamb before the slaughter, Jesus went. He could have stopped it. A sword fight could have happened. Imagine that, if we had that sword fight. What if we did see the 72,000 angels coming down? What if he did speak something and the earth melted in that moment? What a story that would have been. But where would that leave you and me? That would have... Stop the cross from happening. And where, where would that leave you and me? That would leave you and me dead in our sins tonight. No, no, no. Jesus was silent. Jesus stood unarmed with love in his eyes, looking to you and looking to me. I will not defend myself because if I do, then what about those that would follow? If I will not defend, my, I will not pick up the sword, I will not call down the angels because what about Craig? What about you? Love stood unarmed because he was willing to choose to die for our sins. Why, though? Why, why does he want to die for me? Why does he want me? Why am I so special? Listen, if angels, if powerful beings like angels add nothing to his perfection, then surely you and I add nothing to his perfection also. He doesn't need me. I'm not necessary for him to be glorious. Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, were glorious before all time began. They don't need me to add to their glory. They don't need me to make them look better. I'm not that special. So why me? No. You and I were made because he, Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, the one whose voice could drop men to their knees, the one whose voice formed and fashioned the earth and the stars, who healed the sick, who spoke the truth, who raised the dead to life, This one made me because he wanted me. Do you understand this? He doesn't need us. Do <laughs> you understand this? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need to love me. 
as though he's deficient. He wants to love me. He doesn't need, he doesn't have to. Nobody's tying his arm behind his back. The creator of the universe is not forced into an arrangement with me out of obligation. He loves me and he loves you because he wants to love you. But what happened is that we have all rejected him. Go away, God. Leave me alone, God. I'm living life for my own way. I'll return that kiss back to you and condemn you. I wish you were dead. We turned away from him and the gift of life that he has given to us. We cursed him and lived like we wished he was dead, but he wanted to love us. And the funny thing about real love, the funny thing about real love is you can't turn it off. You can't stop loving people just because they treat you poorly. We see that even in human relationships with our children, with our spouses, with those friends around us. I can't stop loving you. And God from his eternal throne looks upon us in our fallen state, living for self, bringing death and destruction into our lives and says, I can't stop loving them. But there's a punishment that must be made. They can't live like this against me and and, and I'm not punishing, otherwise sin is no big deal and I'm no big deal. So a punishment has to be given. A punishment has to be given, but I love them so much. I must punish, but I love them so much. And what does God do? God says his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God among us, faces the punishment that we might have the life suffers the wrath of God against sin, though he was innocent. And now you and I, through faith in him, have salvation and life. And we can sense once and for all the love of Christ upon us. Jesus comes and says to us, I will go, Father, and then I will pay. I will do this work. Now Luke tells us one more thing in his gospel that happened before we leave this scene. It tells us that he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. He reached up and touched it and healed it. And how interesting is it? Amy Carmichael points this out. How interesting is it that the last thing the Savior does before his hands are tied is to heal. And then his hands go back and bound. And then Jesus takes his life and walks obediently to the cross, and with his life, just a few verses later, gives his life up to heal not just an ear on one man, but to heal the sins of the world. This is an exclamation point to Peter, not by sword, Peter, not by angels, not even by my voice, but by my death, by my sacrifice for sin, the kingdom is coming, by my sacrifice, Peter. This is the love of Christ upon us. This is the love that we need to see tonight. How how deep the love of Christ is for you and I, that he would stand unarmed and walked obediently to the cross. This is how we know Jesus loves us. Yes, Jesus loves me because he stood unarmed. And you walk by the bulletin board one more time and you see the note again from Jesus and you pull it off and it says, hey, there's your name. Hey, Craig, I love you. I wouldn't run away. And it wouldn't carry weapons. I wouldn't fight back. I did it because I loved you.
And now verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come in against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this had taken place that the scriptures might be scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then the disciples left him and fled. Love stood still when he could have run. Love stood unarmed when he could have fought. Now finally, love stood alone. Last point in our outline tonight, love stood alone. Jesus calls out to the crowds to highlight their shames. Am I a robber? Was I not with you every day in the daylight? Was I not easily accessible in the daylight in the Temple Mount teaching with you? Why now? Why in the dark? Why this takedown? Well, because they're cowards. Jealous bullies who want him dead. Operating outside of even their own laws. They don't care if it's legal. They just want him dead. And even in the process of Jesus imminently about to destroy sin, he's still calling out sin. And as soon as it seems like a done deal, we read in verse 56 that all his disciples left and fled. Now Mark's account goes one step further and tells us of a young man who was seized by his robe and he left it behind running as fast as he could. He did everything to get away. But this also was planned. Zechariah 13, 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, John's gospel gives us something interesting here as well. John tells us that something happens in here. Just before this, he says this in John, uh, John 18, verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. This is immediately after I am, and they fall down. He says this, I told you that I'm he. So if, it's, if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Jesus had said, of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Do you see what he's saying here? You're looking for me. Let them go. Another command. If you're looking for me, and you are looking for me, then let the rest of them go. Do you understand what's happening here? Jesus knew that they would leave him. I used to read this passage and think, oh, these guys are shameful to the very end. Look at that. How much do you love Jesus? You did that? Oh, come on. You fled him in his hour of need. But listen, that verse tells us that Jesus wanted this. Jesus planned it. It was planned. He wanted them to leave. Let these men go. A final command before his hands are bound. He has to stand alone. He has to face death alone. So that they and you and I don't have to. Would you have done that? Would you have done it alone? Would you have done something like this for people who would rejected you? For people who despised you? for people who ran away from you, for people who abandoned you? Would you do what Jesus is about to do for those kinds of people? Would you do that? Well, Jesus did. And in the remaining hours of his life, the Savior endures abandonment as never before. Never before seen in this earth and never before to be seen. Despised by men, he endures the Father's wrath against sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. Jesus really knows what it's like to be alone. He chose abandonment. He knew it was coming. He loves his father and his father loves him. He loves you. Do you love him? He could have set up a kingdom. 
He, he could have fought back with swords, with angels, with his voice even. He could have run, but, but he didn't. All that Jesus endured so that you and I might have life. Now, I make no apologies tonight. The major application of the passage in front of us, I believe, is this. Love Jesus more because of what he's done for us. Love Jesus because he loves you. Uh, to walk by the bulletin board, to pull off the notes, and to read again, this is what I've done for you, Craig. I stood still when I could have run. I stood unarmed when I could have fought back. I stood alone when I could have gathered a kingdom around myself. I did all of that because I knew you were coming. And I knew that you would have sin, just like the rest of us have sin. And I knew that in your sin you would perish. And I knew that if I paid for your sin, it would be paid for. And I knew that if I hung on the cross and died for your sins and said the phrase and did the work and said it is finished, then I knew it would be finished for now and for eternity. And I knew in that moment, Craig, because I loved you, that by your faith in that you would have salvation. Jesus loves me. This I know. Knowing where this love would take him, he still chose it. Today even, how can I doubt his love for me when he's loved me like this? When I read the truth of his word and see what he's done for me, for you, how can I doubt his love? How can I think he's not there for me, even tonight, with whatever I'm struggling with? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a thing at work. Maybe it's a thing in my own heart. How can I doubt that Jesus isn't there for me? How can I doubt that Jesus doesn't love me? Someone who loves you this much and would do this much for you is someone who loves you greatly beyond even what we can imagine. Yes, Jesus loves me. This I know.